Do you see dead people? Not because you're a Bruce Willis superfan, but because visits with Gma got a little weird after her funeral. Are you often up at 3 a.m. googling the various ways in which bodies decompose? But you swear it's just harmless research. Are you the first of your friend group to go on a murder tour or rent a haunted location for the night? Then this is the podcast for you. Welcome to the Identity Podcast. The year's 1885. Mark Twain published Adventures of Huckleberry Finn. President Chester A. Arthur dedicated the Washington Monument. President Grover Cleveland is sworn in March 4th. Inventor Sarah E. Good applies for and receives a patent for the invention of the hideaway bed, the first female African-American to do so. The Statue of Liberty arrives in New York Harbor and Dr. Pepper is served for the first time. This was also the point in history when a man named Erasmus Wilson penned an article for the Pennsylvania Dispatch as the Quiet Observer, entitled, What Girls Are Good For? A response to a letter a father with five unmarried daughters had sent to the paper. According to Wilson, they're not good for very much and many men of the time were in agreement with some of the points that he made in his article. Wilson even went so far as to say that working women were a monstrosity and suggested that American parents address an excess of women in a similar manner as China had dealt with an excess of boys, female-specific infanticide. Maybe he was joking? Wilson also wrote an article about where sweat comes from, so it's likely a lot of women of the time weren't too enthused about his subject matter, tubing and secretions, to begin with. Elizabeth Cochran was 20 at the time and was infuriated by the article. Cochran was from a wealthy family, and her father had 15 children between two marriages. Disgusted by Wilson's writings, Elizabeth wrote a response to the article focusing on the struggles of lower-class single mothers, a position that Elizabeth's mother had found herself in after the death of her husband. Elizabeth was only six at the time. Elizabeth understood that a person's class would limit available opportunities in life, and she addressed the response to, quote, butterflies of fashions, ladies of leisure, end quote. Those women of the upper class who might not understand the struggle of a lower class woman. She also addressed Wilson's flippant comment about China. From Mental Floss, quote, Can they that have full and plenty of this world's good realize what it is to be a poor working woman, abiding in one or two bare rooms, without fire enough to keep warm, while her threadbare clothes refuse to protect her from the wind and the cold, 
and denying herself necessary food that her little ones may not go hungry. Fearing for the landlord's frown and threat to cast her out, and sell what little she has, begging for employment of any kind, that she may earn enough to pay for the bare rooms that she calls home. No one to speak kindly to or encourage her. Nothing to make life worth living. If sin in the form of a man comes forward with a wily smile and says, Fear no more, your debt shall be paid. She cannot let her children freeze or starve, and so falls. Perhaps she has not the advantage of a good education, consequently cannot teach, or providing she is capable, the girl that needs it not half as much, but has the influential friends, gets the preference. Mr. Quiet Observations says, In China they kill girl babies. Who knows but that this country may have to resort to this sometime. Well, it would not be well, as in some cases it would save a life of misery and sin and many a lost soul. How many wealthy and great men could be pointed out who started in the depths, but where are the many women? Let a youth start as an errand boy and he will work his way up until he is one of the firm. Girls are just as smart, a great deal quicker to learn. Why then can they not do the same? Here would be a good field for believers in women's rights. Let them forgo their lecturing and writing and go to work. More work and less talk. Take some girls that have the ability, procure for them situations, start them on their way, and by doing so, accomplish more than by years of talking." End quote. Upon receipt of this commentary, the editor of the dispatch, George Madden, contacted Cochran. He had to do a little bit of searching, as she signed her response as Lonely Orphan Girl. So he published an ad in the paper and requested that she come by the offices. When she did so, Madden offered her a writing position on the spot. She was also given a pen name under which to write, Nellie Bly. Hello, oddballs, and welcome back to another episode of the Identity Podcast, your weekly foray into the weird, wonky, and sometimes downright spooky. This week, I'll introduce you to Elizabeth Cochran, a young woman who went undercover and posed as someone with mental illness in order to expose abuses within the local asylum. She was an interesting and ambitious young woman who helped a lot of people who had otherwise been forgotten and the time she spent within the asylum changed the way in which it operated in a big way. Shout out to Dave from Mississippi and Megan from Alaska, who suggested this topic. Also, additional shout outs to a couple of newcomers to the Insta network that I'm part of. What's up with a podcast and Ladies Pitch podcast. Two great casts that should get a little sub love. And now, on with the show. My old deodorant just wasn't cutting it anymore. I was constantly itchy and frequently had rashes under my arms. Then I switched to Lumi. In case you were wondering, everything they say in the cute advertisements with the French lady that you've seen are true. Lumi is a natural deodorant for underarms and private parts that's clinically proven to last up to 48 hours. I can now go almost 72 hours without reapplication. I also use Lumi on my feet, and they have a line of soap, lotion, and wipes to satisfy all of your stink suppression needs. 
Lumi was invented by an OBGYN, is safe for any external use, and is made without aluminum, baking soda, or fragrance oils. So it's safe for even the most sensitive skin. But Lumi still smells pleasant. I'm partial to the juniper berry and clean tangerine myself, but there's also jasmine rose, silver spruce, lavender sage, coconut crush, and unscented. Right now, Lumi is offering first-class shipping on USPS orders over $20 or more, and there's always a sensational sale on their site. You see what I did there? And as a bonus, if you buy using my link, you'll be automatically entered to win a free Lumi product every week. So head on over to the Lumi website via the link in the show notes and take Lumi out for a spin. Lumi, for everyone's pits and stinky bits. Elizabeth Cochran received little formal schooling and was essentially a woman waiting to be married off until the death of her father. Up until this point, Elizabeth had a life of luxury. After her father's death, Elizabeth would work with her mother in the running of a boarding house in order to make ends meet. It wasn't until 1885 that Elizabeth, who had always had the desire to be something more, realized her dream of becoming a writer for the Pittsburgh Dispatch. The pseudonym Nellie Bly was borrowed from a popular Stephen Foster song, published in 1850. Foster was an American composer who primarily wrote minstrel songs and sentimental ballads. The song itself showcases the life of a woman of the time period, serving her husband, who provides for her. Nellie Bly, Nellie Bly, bring the broom along. We'll sweep the kitchen clean, my dear, and have a little song. Poke the wood, my lady love, and make the fire burn. And while I take the banjo down, just give the mush a turn. Hi Nelly, ho Nelly, listen love to me. I'll sing for you, play for you, a dulcet melody. There's more, but I'll leave it to you to find the rest. Ultimately, the pseudonym was chosen because Elizabeth Cochran wrote about topics that addressed the inequalities women had to endure. She wrote about poor women in slums, and conditions for working girls, and was allowed to report on wider issues than would generally be confined to the women's pages in the paper. From Botanica.com, quote, In 1886-87, she traveled for several months through Mexico, sending back reports on official corruption and the condition of the poor. Her sharply critical articles angered Mexican officials, and caused her expulsion from the country. The articles were subsequently collected in Six Months in Mexico, 1888. In 1887, Cochran left Pittsburgh for New York City and went to work for Joseph Pulitzer's New York World. One of her first undertakings for that paper was to get herself committed to the asylum on Blackwell's, now Roosevelt, island by feigning insanity, end quote. And what an undertaking it was. In her book, 10 Days in a Madhouse, Cochran outlines her plan to infiltrate the asylum on Blackwell's Island from the beginning. And it's a fascinating read. It can be found online for free, courtesy of the University of Pennsylvania. I'll drop a link to it in the show notes. 
There were worries, of course, that she would be found out before she ever got to Blackwell's, or that once she arrived, a psychiatrist would speak to her and declare her sane. These people were experts, after all. They'd know a viable patient if they saw one, right? From 10 Days in a Madhouse, quote, On the 22nd of September, I was asked by the world if I could have myself committed to one of the asylums for the insane in New York with a view to writing a plain and unfurnished narrative of the treatment of the patients therein, and the methods of management, etc. Did I think I had the courage to go through such an ordeal as the mission would demand? Could I assume the characteristics of insanity to a degree that I could pass the doctors, live for a week among the insane without the authorities there finding out I was only a shield among them taking notes? I said I believed I could. I had some faith in my own ability as an actress and thought that I could assume insanity long enough to accomplish my mission entrusted to me. Could I pass a week in the insane ward on Blackwell's Island? I said I could. And I would. And I did. My instructions were simply to go on with my work as soon as I felt I was ready. I was to chronicle faithfully the experiences I underwent and when once within the walls of the asylum to figure out and describe its inside workings, which are always so effectually hidden by white-capped nurses, as well as by bolts and bars from the knowledge of the public. We do not ask you to go there for the purpose of making sensational revelations. Write up things as you find them, good or bad. Give praise or blame as you think best. And the truth all the time. But I am afraid of that chronic smile of yours, said the editor. I will smile no more, I said, and went away to execute my delicate and, as I found out, difficult mission. If I did get into the asylum, which I hardly hoped to do, I had no idea that my experiences would contain aught else than a simple tale of life in an asylum. That such an institution could be mismanaged and that cruelties could exist neath its roof I did not deem possible. I always had a desire to know asylum life more thoroughly, a desire to be convinced that the most helpless of God's creatures, the insane, were cared for kindly and properly. The many stories I'd read of abuses in such institutions I had regarded as wildly exaggerated, or else romances. Yet there was a latent desire to know positively. I shuddered to think how completely the insane were in power of their keepers, and how one could weep and plead for release, and all to no avail, if the keepers were so minded. Eagerly I accepted the mission to learn the inside workings of Blackwell Island Insane Asylum. How will you get me out? I asked the editor, after I once get in. I don't know, he replied, but we will get you out, if we have to tell who you are and for what purpose you feigned insanity, only to get in. I had little belief in my ability to deceive the insanity experts, and I think my editor had less. All the preliminary preparations for my ordeal were left to be planned by myself. Only one thing was decided upon, namely that I should pass under the pseudonym of Nellie Brown, the initials of which would agree with my own name and my linen and so that there will be no difficulty in keeping track of my movements and assisting me out if any difficulties or dangers I might get into. There were ways of getting into the insane ward, 
but I did not know them. I might adopt one of two horses. Either I could feign insanity at the house of friends and get myself committed on the decision of two competent physicians, or I could go to my goal by way of the police courts." End quote. Corcoran opted to find a boarding house and claimed that she was seeking work. She selected the temporary home for females on number 84 2nd Avenue, a dark and crowded place filled with working class women. When she arrived, she was greeted at the door by a young girl with an oddly mature face. She was ushered inside and when asked if the matron was in, was told that the matron was busy and she should wait in the back parlor. After some time, a woman who introduced herself as the matron's assistant told her that the boarding house was crowded and she'd have to share a room, but lodging was available at the cost of 30 cents per night, which included the room and a meal. Corcoran saw no issue with sharing a room, as she assumed that she'd be in close quarters on Blackwell's Island soon enough. She was shown to her room and began writing several pages of what Corcoran calls utter nonsense for inquisitive scientists in a journal, along with the name of the matron's assistant, Mrs. Stenard. After a dinner of boiled beef, potatoes, coffee, and bread, she paid her 30 cents for the first night. Corcoran describes the interior of the boarding house with great detail and chagrin, stating that, quote, honest workers, the most deserving of women, are asked to call this spot of bareness home, end quote. Corcoran took her place in the back parlor, watching women around her knit and make lace. The room is crowded and there aren't enough places for women to sit, so some stand leaning. One woman keeps falling asleep and waking herself up with her own snoring and the doorbell seems to be constantly ringing all the time. Quote, As it drew toward evening, Mrs. Stenard came to me and said, What is wrong with you? Have you some sorrow or trouble? No, I said, almost stunned at the suggestion. Why? Oh, because, she said, woman-like, I can see it in your face. It tells the story of great trouble. Yes, everything is so sad, I said in a haphazard way which I had intended to reflect my craziness. But you must not allow that to worry you. We all have our troubles, but we get over them in good time. What kind of work are you trying to get? I don't know. It's all so sad, I replied. Would you like to be a nurse for children and wear a nice white cap and apron, she asked. I put my handkerchief up to my face to hide a smile and replied in a muffled tone, I never worked. I don't know how. But you must learn, she urged. All these women here work. Do they? I said in a low, trilling whisper. Why, they look horrible to me, just like crazy women. I'm so afraid of them. They don't look very nice, she answered assentingly. But they are good, honest, working women. We do not keep crazy people here. I again used my handkerchief to hide a smile, as I thought that before morning she would at least think that she had one crazy person among her flock. They all look crazy, I asserted again, and I am afraid of them. There are so many crazy people about, and one can never tell what they will do. And police never catch the murderers. And I finished with a sob that would have broken an audience of blasé critics. She gave a sudden and convulsive start, and I knew that my first stroke had gone home. 
It was amusing to see what a remarkably short time it took her to get up from her chair and to whisper hurriedly, I'll come back and talk to you after a while. I knew she would not come back, and she did not, end quote. Over the course of the evening, Corcoran began acting strangely, continually stating that the women in the boarding house were crazy and meant her harm, and explaining to one lady, a Mrs. Ruth Kane, that her trunks and personal effects had been lost. When asked for clarification as to what she was missing, Corcoran explained that she had a terrible headache and remembered nothing about it. Kane offered to sleep in the same room with her while other residents of the boarding house kept their distance, fearing that Corcoran might kill one of them in the night. One woman even had a terrible nightmare in which Corcoran attacked her with a knife. The woman woke screaming. Corcoran spent the entire night sitting up staring at the wall while Kane slept, waking periodically to check on her roommate. Of Kane's kindness, Corcoran said, quote, By every means she tried to have me go to bed and rest, and when it drew toward morning, she got up and wrapped a blanket around me for fear that I might get cold. Then she kissed me on the brow and whispered compassionately, Poor child, poor child. How much I admired that little woman's courage and kindness. How I longed to reassure her and whisper that I was not insane. And how I hoped that, if any poor girl should ever be so unfortunate as to be what I was pretending to be, she might meet with one who possessed the same spirit of human kindness possessed by Mrs. Ruth Kane. End quote. By morning, the residents of the boarding house had felt that they'd been through quite enough, and Miss Stenard contacted the authorities to have Corcoran collected and taken from the premises. At first, Corcoran feigned reluctance, claiming again that her trunks were missing and she'd need them before she would leave. The police were ready to drag her out if she wouldn't go, but Mrs. Kane assured her that the policemen were here to take her to the express office to find her belongings. Corcoran went with Stenard, with the two policemen following behind. At the station, Corcoran was transported by car to the courthouse, where a judge heard her case. She kept talking about her missing trunks, sticking to her story, and claiming the terrible headaches had made her lose her memory. The judge said that she should be taken to Bellevue Hospital for examination, and to be held there until the drug wears off. The judge believed that Corcoran had been drugged, and this is what led to her forgetfulness. An ambulance was called and a routine examination performed. A doctor looked in Corcoran's eyes, checked her pulse, listened to her heart, and asked her to stick out her tongue, proclaiming that he believed that she'd taken belladonna, or nightshade. She was loaded into the ambulance and trucked off to Bellevue with a trail of gawkers trying to get a glimpse of the crazy lady there was even an article written about her in the Sunday issue of The Sun. At Bellevue, Corcoran was fed a meal of boiled meat and a potato and given a moth-eaten shawl to wear to combat the cold. All of the windows stood open and even the nurses wore heavy garments to keep warm. When Corcoran complained of the cold and asked if they would close the windows, the nurses explained to her that this was a place of charity and she should not complain. At this point, she's further interviewed by a psychiatrist at the hospital who declares her positively demented and in need of someone to take care of her. She's further interviewed 
after a cold, sleepless night by a young psychiatrist who asks if she hears voices or sees faces on the walls. Corcoran says she does. Her interview over, she sits outside the door and waits to hear how the other interviews are conducted. Corcoran writes, quote, With little variation, the examination was exactly the same as mine. All the patients were asked if they saw faces on the wall, heard voices, and what they said. I might also add, each patient denied any such peculiar freaks of sight and hearing, end quote. In the hospital, she finds many other women who don't belong there and who are cold and hungry. Food rations are slim and consist mostly of unbuttered bread, potatoes, and broth. She's also introduced to Warden O'Rourke, who brings well-dressed men and women into the ward to have a gawk at the people housed there. After several days at Bellevue, Corcoran and several others are rounded up and brought to the wharf, where they're loaded into a small boat that will take them to Blackwell's Island. When they arrive, Corcoran and the four other women are herded into an ambulance. When Corcoran asks where she is, the ambulance driver says flatly, Blackwell's Island, an insane place where you'll never get out of. Corcoran could see the fear etched into the faces of the women around her, and she wondered as the ambulance climbed the hill toward the lunatic asylum, what life will be like from here on out. The women with her had little hope of ever being released from Blackwell's. The only means of leaving was to escape or to die, and escape from the asylum was pointless, as there was no way off the island. When the group arrived, they were ordered out of the ambulance and led into the main entry, down a long carpeted hallway and into a sitting room filled with other women. Some shifted to make room for new arrivals. One woman approached Cochran, asking who sent her to Blackwell's. She replied that the doctors had sent her, to which the woman queried what they sent her for. She explained the doctor said she was insane, to which the woman replied incredulously, insane? It cannot be seen in your face. Each new woman was interviewed individually by a nurse named Miss Group. Each answer to the questions Group asked seemed logical enough to Corcoran, one woman spoke only German, and, as there was no translator, could not plead her case for release. Corcoran writes of this experience, quote, confined most probably for life behind asylum bars, without even being told in her language the why and wherefore. Compare this with a criminal, who was given every chance to prove his innocence. Who would not rather be a murderer and take a chance for life than be declared insane without hope for escape. Miss Shans begged in German to know where she was and pleaded for liberty. Her voice was broken by sobs. She was led unheard out to us." End quote. After interviews, the women were ordered into a room filled with long tables, a small bowl of an odd pink-colored tea, five prunes and a slice of bread with butter are laid out at each seat. One patient gathers up several bowls and slices of bread, consuming them hungrily. Corcoran herself has her bread stolen and is unable to stomach the tea. It had a strange copper aftertaste and contains no sugar. Another patient offers her their serving of bread, but Corcoran declines. She asks a nurse for bread, and the food is all but thrown at her. Once all the food was consumed, 
everyone was ordered back to the sitting room. Corcoran knows how to play piano, and so she plays Rockabye Baby while another patient sings. After a couple of hours, the patients are told it's time for their bath. The ward is freezing to the point where many of the patients are blue with cold. Up until this point, the new arrivals have worn the clothing that they came in, but when the nurses order them to the bath, they're told to strip. A patient is assigned, one Corcoran describes as a crazy old woman chattering to herself, to do the washing as the nurses look on. When Corcoran arrived, she noticed how clean the building was, but now she realizes that the nurses aren't the ones doing the cleaning. Corcoran is ordered into the tub. The water is unchanged and murky, and the old woman rubs a paste-like soap all over. After a vigorous washing that borders on painful, she's rinsed with three buckets of ice-cold water. Once rinsed, she's dragged from the tub, dripping wet, is dressed in a short canton flannel slip with lunatic asylum B-I-H-6 emblazoned on the front. The letters mean Blackwell's Island, Hall 6. Corcoran is ushered into her own room, containing a small bed with a large barred window, while other patients are six to a room. Corcoran is told that she's to sleep alone, as she'll talk too much. The story in the paper has given her some notoriety, it seems. Since her arrival at Blackwell's, she's questioned the treatment of patients, is hesitant to follow the rules, and asked for what a nurse believed to be additional food rations. She's not a favorite of the nurses. She's given a wool blanket that's too short, still drenched from her bath, and tries her best to keep warm while sleeping on wet sheets. Her door, as well as the doors of the other patients, are locked tight. As she lies shivering in the dark, she ponders what might happen if there's ever a fire at Blackwell's. All of the patients would surely die, as the nurses would save themselves. Corcoran writes, quote, Every door is locked separately, and the windows are heavily barred so that escape is impossible. In the one building alone, there are, I think Dr. Ingram told me, some 300 women. They're locked one to ten to a room. It's impossible to get out unless these doors are unlocked. A fire is not improbable, but one of the most likely occurrences. Should the building burn, the jailers or nurses would never think of releasing their crazy patients. This I can prove to you later, when I come to tell of their cruel treatment of the poor things entrusted to their care. As I say, in case of fire, not a dozen women would escape. All would be left to roast to death. Even if the nurses were kind, which they are not, it would require more presence of mind than women of their class possess to risk the flames and their own lives while they unlocked the hundred doors for the insane prisoners. Unless there is a change, there will be, someday, a tale of horror never equaled." End quote. I'm keen on protein powders that give me a little extra boost. There are mornings when I just can't get up and eat a huge breakfast, so I make a protein shake instead, and the powders I got from Unico Nutrition hit the spot. There are so many delicious flavors. Vanilla ice cream milkshake, ooey gooey frosted cinnamon roll, spoonful of peanut butter with chocolate, Aunt Judy's banana cream pie, molten chocolate lava shake, cookies and cream dream, and candy shop caramel squares. They even have a birthday cake cupcake with rainbow sprinkles. 
Unico Protein Powder for Women and Men is the perfect guilt-free indulgence. Use low-carb protein shakes for faster recovery after workouts, healthier snacking, or even as a meal replacement. The powder itself is so fine that it blends seamlessly into milkshakes and mixes for baked goods, and Unico has a bunch of recipes on their website for delicious donuts and keto-friendly cinnamon rolls, to name a few. Unico's everyday wellness supplements help replenish essential nutrients and help you live your best life. Trim down and tone up with Unico's best-in-class supplements for weight loss, carefully formulated with five patented all-natural ingredients to help you achieve your healthiest physique. Right now, listeners of the Identity Podcast can save $20 on their purchase at uniconutrition.com. Just head on over to their website and use code IDENTITY at checkout. That's O-D-D-E-N-T-I-T-Y. Say goodbye to chalky, tasteless protein powders and supplements that fall flat, and say hello to Unico Nutrition. It's like a bunch of unicorns are having a rave in your mouth. Seriously. In the morning, the patients are given clothes to wear that are made by the patients themselves. They're threadbare and barely enough to keep them covered, certainly not enough that they could stay warm, and brought to the bathroom where they're told to wash their faces. The water in the wash basins is unchanged between patients, and some have lesions. Cochrane describes them as eruptions on their faces. The patients also share towels to dry their faces. Corcoran opts to use her slip as a towel. The patients are then sat on a long bench to have their hair combed. Combs are also shared, and it's clear to Corcoran that some of the patients have lice and other afflictions. She endures the combing, painful because she had slept on her wet hair and it's become matted, and her hair is done in a plait and tied with a red rag. Corcoran is now the pitcher of a patient at Blackwell's and blends perfectly well with the others. After hygiene is taken care of, the women are told to clean the hall from top to bottom, even the nurses' quarters. After the cleaning is completed, to the nurses' standards, the patients go for breakfast. Breakfast consists of oatmeal with molasses, tea, and buttered bread. All are inedible, and Cochrane finds a spider baked into her bread. She chooses not to eat it. The food tastes of mold and rot. Since coming to Blackwell's, Corcoran has been unable to eat the food there. It's often cold, ill-prepared, and teeming with bugs. When breakfast is through, new patients get to see the doctors again. The other patients are instructed to the sitting room, and they don't get to see the doctor. Corcoran is examined briskly, while the doctor flirts with the nurse who is present, and her pleas to have her notebook and pencil returned to her are denied. After a few days in Hall 6, Corcoran and her fellow patients get to go on an outing, a short walk around the grounds. It's then that she's introduced to the lodge, a hall where the most violent and depraved patients are kept. As they walk past the building, Corcoran can see that the patients in the yard are filthy and starving. Some are led around by nurses and are fastened together with long cable rope. While most are walking along easily enough, Others are stumbling and being shoved by the nurses. There are 1,600 women housed on Blackwell's Island at this point. During her time on Blackwell's Island, Corcoran witnessed all manner of abuses being inflicted on patients. 
from threats of violence to beatings, being dragged by the hair and locked in a closet, being forced to eat terrible food while doctors and nurses ate like royalty. Corcoran saw it all. Each day at Blackwell's was the same, and they all began bleeding together. She found that working women and those living below the poverty line were sent to the asylums for the most ridiculous things. Many of the women present weren't even suffering from any sort of mental illness. On visiting days, the women are hastily dressed and groomed for their relatives when they normally only receive a bath and clean clothing once a week in an effort to disguise their mistreatment. As I mentioned before, the water wasn't changed between patients on bath nights, and if the water was let out, the tub wasn't rinsed before it was refilled. All manners of diseases ran rampant within the institution. The nurses left the care of their most ill charges up to other patients, and seldom lifted a finger to do anything to help. Women were beaten regularly, held underwater until they almost drowned, then brought around again and nearly drowned again. Some women had huge clumps of their hair pulled out by nurses, and some nurses would feed the delusions of the mentally ill patients for their own amusement. Corcoran witnessed the death of several patients and the birth of a baby in this house of horrors. Blackwell's was truly a hell on earth. Corcoran says of exiting Blackwell's, quote, I had toward the last been shut off from all visitors. And so when the lawyer, Peter A. Hendricks, came and told me that friends of mine were willing to take charge of me if I would rather be with them than in the asylum, I was only too glad to give my consent. I asked him to send me something to eat immediately on his arrival in the city, and then I waited anxiously for my release. I had looked forward so eagerly to leaving this horrible place, yet when my release came and I knew that God's sunlight was to be free for me again, there was a certain pain in leaving. For 10 days, I had been one of them. Foolishly enough, it seemed insanely selfish to leave them to their sufferings. I felt a quixotic desire to help them by sympathy and presence, but only for a moment. The bars were down and freedom was sweeter to me than ever." End quote. Upon her return to normal life, Corcoran was summoned to appear before the grand jury. She related all of the information that she had collected on Blackwell's, including the ill treatment of patients and the quality of life to them. Miss Anne Neville, a fellow patient who had traveled with Corcoran to the asylum on the first day, was asked to verify her claims in order to convince the jury that she was sane. Neville told those present that the nurses were cruel and the food was often rancid and inedible. She also stated that there was not enough clothing to keep the patients warm, and although they asked for additional clothing constantly, they were denied. Neville explained that since Miss Brown, Cochran, had left, the food conditions had improved. The jurors visited the kitchens, which had been deep cleaned beforehand to eliminate all sign of neglect, and beautiful white bread and fruit was on display. Two barrels of salt stood conspicuously by the door. Mattresses had been replaced, and the entire institution was a showplace. The women Corcoran had spent time with on the wards were gone, spirited off to other places to avoid uncomfortable conversations. Corcoran concludes, quote, I hardly expected the grand jury to sustain me after they saw everything different from what it had been while I was there. Yet they did, 
and their report to the court advises all the changes made that I had proposed. I have one consolation for my work. On the strength of my story, the Committee of Appropriation provides one million more dollars than was ever before given for the benefit of the insane, end quote. Corcoran's time at Blackwell's Island was not the highlight of her journalistic career. Rather, it was her trip around the world in 72 days, 6 hours, 11 minutes, and 14 seconds, a challenge she posed against Jules Verne's novel Around the World in 80 Days. She was even transported from San Francisco to New York by a special train and stopped periodically on her journey to be greeted by brass bands, cheering onlookers, and fireworks. A link to her book, Around the World in 72 Days, is in the show notes. It's also free to view. Corcoran eventually retired from newspaper reporting, marrying millionaire Robert Seaman in 1985, but returned to work at the New York Journal in 1920 after his death. She died in January 1922 of pneumonia at the age of 57, but her work as a super spy will not soon be forgotten. That's it for this week, dear listeners. Tune in next week for more tales of the creepy, weird, and paranormal. Until next time, stay spooky. The Identity Podcast is brought to you on a weekly basis by host Janine Mercer. The podcast is written, produced, and edited by Janine Mercer, unless otherwise stated, and the music is provided by GarageBand. Find The Odd Pod on Twitter and Instagram at IdentityPod and Facebook as The Identity Podcast. You're welcome to email suggestions for future episodes to theidentitypodcast at gmail.com. And if you'd like a transcript of this episode, one will be available at theidentitypodcast.wordpress.com. Please take a moment to leave a five-star review on iTunes. And if you haven't already, please make sure to mash that subscribe button to be sure you're in the know when a new episode drops. Sincerest thanks to all that have promoted the Identity Podcast to their family, friends, and coworkers. Every little bit helps.